I want to encourage you now to open up your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible that's there in the pew, and we're going to be opening up to the Gospel of John chapter 20. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, I want you to know the Bible that's there in the pew is our gift to you. Please take that. Take it for yourself. If you have someone in your life who could benefit from having the Word of God in their hands, take that Bible freely. We would love for you to have that as a gift today on Easter, so please uh, take advantage of that. In those Bibles either in the pew on page 756 or your own Bible, we are going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we're going to be reading starting with verse 19. Let's hear the word of the Lord. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But these things are written that you may believe, that by believing you may have life. My friends, today is about what we believe. Today is about whether what we believe gives us life. What do you believe? Who do you believe in? When's the last time you honestly considered these questions? Does what you believe give you life? Are you leaning into, depending upon what you believe, to reflect upon your past, to anticipate your future, to make choices in the present? Or are you like so many, so many people today, just drifting, moving from day to day as a creature of habit, working for a living, running on a treadmill, chasing success, security, and satisfaction, but never really feeling like you're getting there. What do we believe? And does what we believe give us life or take it away from us? Because you see, we're gathered here today because a stone has been rolled away. A tomb is empty. A body is missing. Not just anybody. Jesus is not here. 
the one called the Christ, the son of man who would be king, the God who came in the flesh, the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world is gone. We nailed him to a tree and watched the life be choked out of him. We buried him in a shallow grave and we sealed his coffin, but Jesus is gone. We look for the crucified among the dead, but find death emptied out. The word comes, Jesus is among the living. Jesus is risen. He is standing, walking, eating, calling us by name. Do we believe this? How? How can we believe it? If we believe it, what does it mean for us and for our lives? You see, those who first followed Jesus had to ask these questions too. While they had the advantage of seeing the risen Jesus with their own eyes, of knowing beyond a reasonable doubt that the events of Easter did occur, their hurdle to belief was how to reconcile the fact that the Messiah sent from God would come to humiliation rather than victory. That Jesus would suffer and die rather than assume his power and authority as king. From their way of seeing things, the Messiah was not supposed to be crucified. The very idea of a crucified Messiah was an obscene contradiction in terms. Foolishness to anyone looking for a savior of the world. A stumbling block for those who wanted to believe Jesus just might be the Messiah. Resurrected or not, Jesus had died. His own people, his own nation had harshly rejected him. Not the most ringing endorsement for belief. The tiny band of followers of Jesus did not fully grasp the meaning of their time, their encounter with the man from Nazareth. They didn't immediately understand how it was all supposed to work in light of the promises that God had made to his people. If you've read this book, you know that even Paul, when he comes to believe in Christ, wrestles with how this is all supposed to work in his letter to the Romans. And let's not forget, we all have heard this story of those two disciples on their way on that road to Emmaus who needed a little help from the risen Jesus, taking them all the way back to Moses through the prophets to explain everything concerning him in the Bible. What I'm trying to help you see, what I really want to sink in for us this morning, is that for those who were first there, it was only after taking their experience and searching the scriptures that they came to see how utterly fitting and entirely consistent the gospel Jesus' life, crucifixion, and resurrection fit into the overall picture of what God was up to in the world. They didn't get it at first. And in fact, the Bible we hold in, your, in our hands, the Bible I hope you're still holding on to, the, more specifically the New Testament we just read, is their legacy to us. For we who would seek to believe and follow Jesus, they have left us a record of their thinking, their arguments, their struggles, their revelations, their hard-fought understanding as to how what God did in and through the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection all make sense. And even if you've never bothered to read this book, to study their notes, if you will, we have internalized their profession of faith, what they believed, whether we realize it or not. We've done this through words that many of us know by heart. See, here at Grace, in the weeks leading up to this Sunday, during the season known as Lent, we have been studying, we've been exploring the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, also known as the Lord's Prayer. This prayer that some of us have memorized since childhood, and for others, at least, we've 
we recognize it when we hear it. This prayer begins, as you know, by talking to our Father. It begins by talking to our Father about the Father, about his name, his kingdom, his will. And then the prayer goes on to speak to our Father about the family, our food, our forgiveness, our temptations, and our deliverance. And then, at the close of this famous prayer, known the world over, is a single-sentence burst of praise. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. But here's the thing. If you look in either Matthew or Luke's gospel, where this prayer is recorded, you won't find these words at all. Yet this last sentence that I just uttered is virtually in virtually every translation of the Lord's Prayer. This is because even though these words are not the words of Jesus, this is the voice of the body of Christ speaking to us on the other side of the resurrection. In the aftermath of Easter, the church experienced the Lord's Prayer in an altogether new and different way than they had before the crucifixion and the resurrection. The surprise, the joy, the peace, the victory of an empty tomb and a risen Jesus changed how they spoke, how they heard, how they felt these words. And the early Christians, they wanted a way to celebrate and express their confidence in a God who could overcome all things, even death itself. And so this phrase of affirmation was added as a sort of compressed creed. These words served as a declaration of belief, framing the context of the early church's faith. And so this morning, I'd like us to consider these words and how they might shape what we believe in light of Easter, what we believe in light of the resurrection. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. For yours is the kingdom. For the early church, this was a profession that the resurrection establishes once and for all that our God reigns, that God reigns, that our hope and our deliverance comes from a reign established not by a vote of approval, not a campaign of control, but through a sacrifice made in love. The kingdom Jesus builds through the cross and the resurrection is not coercive. He doesn't force himself on anyone. He refuses to fight evil with evil. And entering into the kingdom that Jesus establishes comes not by making a contribution, not by earning a place at the table, not by even knowing the right people. Everyone is invited. No one is turned away. All are welcome as long as each person leans not on their own clout or rights, but the merit, the righteousness, the grace of Jesus. For yours is the kingdom my friends, beloved, as, as we still live in a world where governments rise and fall, as politicians so often fail us, as proposed solutions and laws remain fixed along party lines, which kingdom do we believe in? The kingdoms of this world or the kingdom that is not of this world? To pray for yours is the kingdom is to declare our security and salvation can only be found in Jesus risen. It is to believe there is a governor over all governors, a king over all kings, and his is the true politics by, me, by which human beings flourish. For yours is the kingdom. For yours is the power. For yours is the power. For us, 
The strength of force is the mightiest display of power. For us, the strength of force is the mightiest display of power. We flex our muscles, right? We raise our voices. We threaten and enforce punishment to let others know we have the power. Two days ago, we nailed Jesus to the cross. The cross is the representation of the world's understanding of power. It is what we do to each other and what we do to God. But you see, the disciples, when they encountered an empty tomb, when they experienced the risen Christ, the disciples realized resurrection demonstrates God's power. The disciples realized that while the cross represents what we do to one another and to God, our way of power, resurrection demonstrates what God does to us in return. Creating something out of nothing. Bringing life from death causing a greater good to come out of an unspeakable evil. This is real power. And Jesus taught us that this real power, the greatest manifestation of this power is love. Jesus rejected earthly power. He never branded a sword, but was always grabbing a basin and a towel. He never built an army to maintain his power. He showed no interest in control of the empire, the temple, or the treasury. No, Jesus challenged evil and injustice, not with threats or violent confrontation, but by offering healing and forgiveness. In extending peace and encouragement to all, Jesus shared his power, shared his strength, and empowered others. Beloved, as we are surrounded Man, and surrounded doesn't even seem like the right word, inundated by forces pushing us towards individualism and autonomy. As we are surrounded by forces promoting the lie that we are a law unto ourselves rather than subject to one another in Christ, what kind of power do you believe in? Where does the power in your life come from? Because you see, to pray, yours is the power, is to acknowledge that if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then we have nothing. To pray yours is the power is to relax our grip, our tight grasp of what we believe is ours in recognition that whatever we have, including the life of our heart, comes from God. Whatever power we hold is a blessing that comes with responsibility. To live out of the resurrection of Christ is to define our power not by all the grain we have collected, but by all the seed God has given us to sow. I'm gonna say that one more time. To live out of the resurrection of Christ is to define our power, not by all the grain we have collected, but by all the seed God has given us to sow. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. Glory is a difficult term to define. In trying to capture the meaning of glory in words, we tend to reduce the very essence of what glory is, right? I mean, a sunrise can be glorious. The morning song of a bird can be glorious. A perfectly executed jump shot can be glorious. A Reese's peanut butter cup egg can be glorious. Sorry, got to way there. Glory is magnificence. Glory is excellence. Glory is perfection. Yet what we tend to think of glory is nothing more than fame. You know, the notoriety and popularity of celebrity or stars. But this misses something fundamental about glory. What it misses is that there is a difference between created glory and the glory of the creator. 
Again, let me repeat that. There's a difference between created glory and the glory of the creator. When we create something that is beautiful, anything, whatever it is, we create something beautiful, something that stands apart. While that thing, whatever it is, is inspiring, its glory does not remain there. It reflects back to us as the one who created it. That's why whenever we see something that takes our breath away, something that captivates us, whatever it is, we find ourselves, we seek, and we finally mouth these words, who made this? Who made this? In the same way, the glory of human achievement is really God's glory. In the risen Christ, the disciples perceived the glory of God to be revealed in a way they had never seen before. Don't miss this part. The disciples perceived the glory of God revealed in a way they had never seen before. Let me break it down for you. Humanity was created to glorify God forever. That's why we're here. We were created to glorify God forever. In other words, we were created to reflect the holiness, the magnificence, the excellence, the perfection of our creator. But since the fall of Adam, no human being has completely accomplished that purpose. Our sin, our brokenness has always gotten in the way. But when Jesus came, in his perfect, sinless life lived, in his willing, sacrificial death on the cross, and especially in his victory over the obstacle of sin, death, and the devil, Jesus reflected the full glory of God. He reflected, don't miss this, the full glory of God by demonstrating for the first time the true glory of our humanity. This is what the disciples came to understand. Jesus reflected the full glory of God because for the first time, he demonstrated the true glory of our humanity. What do I mean? He demonstrated our realized potential, not our unrealized potential, our realized potential. He demonstrated our infinite possibility, not our finite limited possibility, but the infinite possibility that God created us with. He demonstrated not our life that smacks right into death, but our eternal life, our life that is intended to go on. And so the disciples found themselves proclaiming, yours is the glory. There is no glory apart from you. Yours is the glory. Beloved, where does the glory in your life come from? Does your identity, who you are, your worth, your value, does it revolve around your accomplishments, your reputation? Or do we embrace the glory of our humanity, the glory of our life in Christ? To pray for yours is the glory is to confess once again, there is no glory that is not God's. There is no glory that is not God's. Praying this in light of the resurrection is to embrace the fact that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing good. Apart from Jesus, apart from Christ, there is no good. There is no glory in us. The glory of our humanity comes through the work of Jesus. It is only what we do in Christ, reflecting his character, his teaching, his person that glorifies God, that represents God properly. Fame is fleeting. We know that. Opinions change within an hour, let alone a day. All we create lasts only for a season. Therefore, our identity, our value, our worth cannot be defined by what we do or what others say about us because it will change. Our identity, our value, our worth, our glory is defined by what Jesus has done for us. 
what Jesus says about us when he proclaims to each and every one of us, this is my beloved son, that is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. My friends, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, the disciples understood, do we get it, that we are committing ourselves to an alternative reality, a different way of understanding kingdom, power, and glory in our world. When we pray this prayer, not by rote, but by honestly submitting ourselves to these petitions, we are seeing the kingdom. We are seeing the power. We are seeing the glory in our world through the eyes of Easter, the vision of the risen Christ. To sincerely pray this prayer, in other words, is to live as people of the resurrection. It is to seek Christ's kingdom, to exercise the power of his love, to give glory to God here and now. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. God's kingdom is now. God's power is now. God's glory is now. Too many of us have been told, too many of us have been taught, today is all about tomorrow. That Jesus is risen indeed, and if we believe in Jesus, we will indeed go to heaven later when we breathe our last breath. And I'm not saying that's not true, it is true. But what I am saying is if all we believe Easter is about is a kingdom, a power and a glory far, far away, then the gospel story sounds more like a fairy tale than life-changing news. My friends, if all we're doing here today is waiting to die, if the goodness of God, if all the goodness of God is just up there in heaven, out of the reach of our daily lives, then we have little to share and not much to offer a watching world. And the thing is, the first witnesses of Easter perceived the impact of the resurrection. They understood the implications of the gospel much, much differently in the presence of the risen Christ, and then subsequently in the empowering presence of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit, the early disciples realized they could pray for something more besides lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The prayer, if you go look in Luke and Matthew, the prayer Jesus taught his followers ended with that intercession, being protected from temptation and evil, but now, watching and taking in what Christ had done for them and for the world, these disciples recognized Jesus had answered that petition. Thanks to the cross and the resurrection, the early church understood they had a new story to tell. They could proclaim the reign of God inaugurated in Jesus Christ now. They could proclaim the power of God had been unleashed through the person of the Holy Spirit now. They could proclaim the glory of God by refusing to be divided by class, ethnicity, or gender and choosing to be united in their care and feeding, encouragement and help of a hungry and suffering world now. And if you know your history, even just a whisper of it, you know that when the early church dared to live like Jesus, to be to each other, as well as to strangers, foreigners, and enemies, to be the body of Christ, resistance and persecution followed. But if you know that history, you also know, as they were rounded up and herded into public arenas to be beaten, burned, and brutalized for the crime of not just believing in Jesus, but for the crime of loving like Jesus, they did not run and hide. 
they prayed the words Jesus gave them and they added their own words of praise. When fear overtook their emotions, resurrection flashed across their souls and they burst into doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. Amen. Beloved, my friends, a broken, bruised, and hurting world doesn't need fire insurance when nations and neighborhoods are already burning. When nations and neighborhoods are already burning with discrimination, oppression, and hate, Kenya comes to mind. But it's not just Kenya. Communities held captive by violence, abuse, and terror need much more than a get-out-of-jail-free card that can be used later when you're dead. The world is dying now. The world longs to see and experience the kingdom, the power, and the glory of the risen Christ now. The hurdle to belief for many today, it may be you who are here. I don't know all the reasons why you're here, but the hurdle to belief for many, maybe even you, is we have not seen the risen Christ for ourselves. The hurdle to belief for many is they have not seen the risen Christ for themselves. And before we balk at this, Peter could not believe until he had seen. Mary could not believe until she had seen. How can anyone believe when they have not seen? The world hears talk about Jesus. The world knows we gather in the name of Jesus. The world watches as we fight over Jesus. But the world still waits to see Jesus. Beloved, the salvation we proclaim on Easter is intended to be more than a promise we make on God's behalf. If Jesus is risen, if we believe in Christ, then we are to be the ambassadors of his kingdom, his power, and his glory now. And it starts by praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then it needs to be us, we need to become the Lord's answer to this prayer through acts of intercession, compassion, mercy, generosity, justice for those who are being silenced, for those who are being neglected, for those who are being discarded. How can anyone believe when they have not seen? The world remains a doubting Thomas until it sees the body of Christ willing to suffer, willing to sacrifice, willing to rise in love and service. Amen? Amen. Oh, good Lord. Amen? Amen? Amen. That is the last word of this prayer. And if you've said that word, because most of us know it all your life, we need to not just blaze over that word. When you say that word, say it like you mean it. Because amen is the last word Jesus taught us to pray. It's the last word in our Bible. It means to be sure. It means to be certain. Biblically, the word amen means you're expressing a firm affirmation in response to what has been said. So you can't say amen. Amen! amen. amen. Say it like you mean it. Say it like you feel it. I'm not saying you have to say it again. <laughs> but understand something. We say amen. We say amen whenever we want to assert that whatever has been said is solid, trustworthy, reliable, whether it's a prayer, a blessing, a word of encouragement, or insight. And here's the thing, we can say amen. That's a word that's in our vocabulary because today, Christ being raised from the dead is the Lord's giant exclamation point, his great amen, 
upon his promise and work to redeem, reconcile, and restore, save this world. Because God in Christ says amen to us, we can say amen. Think about it. If God came into the flesh, if God came in the flesh into this poor, broken, chaotic little world, then amen. Life isn't random. Life isn't meaningless. If Jesus willingly gave his life for us, if we're worth dying for, then amen. You and I have a purpose, a reason for being here. If the one who says he forgives my sins, the one who says he will make all things new can come back from the grave, we put him in. If Jesus is risen, then amen. Grace and mercy are real. Love really is stronger than hate, and death isn't the last word in our lives. Because God has said amen to us, we can be sure our Heavenly Father will hear our prayer, and his name will be hallowed. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. If he did not spare his own son, we can be sure our Heavenly Father will give us all things, our daily bread, our forgiveness of sins, the strength to resist temptation, and our ultimate deliverance from evil. Because God has said yes to us, we are given the confidence to say amen with every prayer we pray to God, with every blessing we seek to impart, with every word of hope that we dare to speak, believing and knowing with all certainty that our Father will hear us, will look on us, will answer us, will meet us with favor for Christ's sake. This is Easter in a nutshell. This is Easter in a nutshell. Easter is the greatest demonstration we have that his is the kingdom, is the power, is the glory now and forever. Amen.